So Will Brinson of CBS Sports reported this several years ago. I thought this was kind of funny. Scott E. Entzminger, a Browns fan, um, this isn't the funny part. He died early at the age of 55 on July 4th of 2013. But Entzminger was an accomplished musician. He loved playing the guitar. He was a member of the Old Fogies Band. I don't have them downloaded on my phone, the Old Fogies Band. But uh, supposedly each year he would write a new song about the Browns and um, he would send that song that he had written with his band along with that, the lyrics of that song, he would send it and also some suggestions to whomever the coach was of the Browns at that time, which is kind of a moving target, let's be honest, right? So he'd share his opinions. In fact, at his funeral, um, his family understood his love as a season ticket holder and a longtime Browns fan. His love, he loved it so much, the Browns, that they asked folks to wear their favorite Browns gear to his funeral, but, but here's the real kicker. He, he asked, his request, his last request was that, as a Browns fan, that there would be six pallbearers that would be there at his funeral. Why? He said, according to his um, obituary that was in the Columbus Dispatch, he said, he respectfully requests six Cleveland Browns pallbearers so the Browns can let him down one last time. <laughs> That's pretty bad, isn't it? It's true. It was in the dispatch. It's got to be true. You know, this year, as we turn our calendars, as we anticipate 2021, I want to really be personal this morning. That for some of us, when we look back at 2020, if we're really honest with ourselves, there's a part of us that wonders if God let us down in 2020. It's, It's a question that comes up when our circumstances kind of don't fill our expectations, when we're disappointed. You think about the Browns and it's a joke, obviously, but but there's a reality there that losing hurts, right? It's, it's frustrating. And in this last year, what we recognize is there have been people among us, some of you in this room, some of you have joined us online that have lost things that were precious to you. For some of us, we've felt the sting of death in this last year, and it's terrible. For some of us, we've seen people that we love isolated from us and separated from us. For some of us, we've recognized that our own physical health has been constantly at risk or also we've, we've experienced sickness. Some of us have had to make terrible phone calls from hospitals, separated, isolated from our families. We, we can keep going through this. For some of us, the expectations of the wealth that we'd invested in for a lifetime, for many of us, we saw that change this last year, that Things have been disrupted. It's, but you guys are like, Sean, this is really depressing. Why are you talking about this? Well, well I want to be honest with ourselves this morning that when that happens, one of those questions that comes to mind for many of us is, is does, does God care? What happened? God, did, you, did you stop blessing me? Did you stop caring about me? God, God, are you still in control when those things that are really valuable to me feel like they've been taken away from me. In in this next few months, we have the privilege of looking at the story of a man who actually responds pretty well to things being ripped away in his life. The the dialogue that surrounds it's incredible. The book of Job, as we study this together, it's been called one of the most theologically rich and important books in the Old Testament. And as we study this together, what we're going to see is the life of a man who is incredibly blessed. Today, we're going to see his wealth was astronomical. It's hard to even picture a man being as wealthy as he was. And we're going to get these little snippets today of of his family. His family 
connected together. They were intimate together. They liked each other. They spent time together. They celebrated together. And what we're going to see is this horrific experience where Job loses those who are most precious to him. He's also going to lose his health. He's going to lose those people who had surrounded him, even those who were the closest people to him, his friends, even if his wife is going to at one point in this whole process say, Job, what did you do to deserve this? And I can't help but, but suggest this morning as we study this together, the, the question of Satan to God is when God's people who've been deeply blessed, and by the way, we've been incredibly blessed. When God's people have been blessed, when you take a little bit of that away, a portion of it away, when you disrupt their expectations, are they going to continue to worship you? Are they going to continue to praise your name? Are they going to continue to say, you're my God and I love you? Or are they going to turn their backs on God? You know what I love about the book of Job is that while it's miserable, there's a part of the book of Job where we get to see somebody who from start to finish, as things are ripped away, he continues to be a man after God's own heart. He continues to say, God, I'm going to trust you through this. I'm going to depend upon you. And as we study this together, one thing that I want to do constantly is I want to bring in the experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that, that our Messiah, our Savior experienced incredible loss. In fact, the loss of Job in some ways pales in comparison to the loss of Christ because of the fact that he was so well, so, so, so overwhelmingly blessed and yet what was going to happen for your and my sake is that these things are going to be taken away because of the fact that he wanted to offer to each one of us hope. And so when we think of our church's namesake, we think of hope as always being in and um, in something, right? It's not just an idea, but it's that we have hope in. And today, what we're going to see together, I hope you brought your Bibles with you. I hope you're ready to study God's Word together. I hope you've read cover to cover through the book of Job before. That's a good resolution for you if you haven't done it. As you turn with me to this incredible book, the question that's going to come to the surface for each one of us is, in what do we trust? Especially today, we'll focus on these first few verses of Job in, in this question of when life seems to be out of control. For Job, what we're going to see is it's going to feel like things are out of control. Hey, by the way, there have been just a few people who thought that in 2020 that things got out of control in our country, that, that in our world, things were out of control. I have newsflash for you. You never were in control. <laughs> but, but what's great about it this morning that we're going to see in God's word is that, that he still remains sovereign. He, he's still good. He's still blessing us. He still provides for our needs. He knows our needs more than what we do. And it's incredibly encouraging to us to accept, I am not in control, but I know the one who is. And today, as we study these words, what we're going to see is a man whose faith did not waver as we study and watch things be pulled away. What he ends up doing is he continues to give God the glory that he deserves. God has not let you and I down, but instead what he's done is he's proven himself faithful. Think for the person who stands back, maybe like Lieutenant Dan on that ship and yells up at God, why, what have you done? This is unfair. 
I love the words of Earl D. Radmacher when he puts it this way. He says, when we want an explanation for why God allows trials to happen to us, the book of Job records the troubling questions, the terrifying doubts, and the very real anguish of a sufferer. I want to pause there for a second. Church does not need to be about us just having easy answers to difficult situations. That's never been the intention of preaching and teaching God's word. It's not easy solutions to situations. It's not ignoring the circumstances of our life. When I read these words, I, I want to be honest with you that, that I can relate to some of this. That there's times in my life when I've stood back and I've said, what did I do? Did I, did I mess up? Are you, are, you, are you attacking me? Why are you taking away something that's precious to me? I've had those times with God. And the way this, this theologian puts it, he says that these are terrifying doubts at times in our life. There, there's very real anguish. For some of you, you are frustrated with God because of the fact that he's taken people who are precious to you away from you. And you stand back and you say, God, why? What is going on? But I love the finish of this quote. He says, the book of Job can help us in the time when we are surrounded with troubles by giving us a glimpse of God's perspective on suffering. We, we get to see God's understanding. And you know what is so essential for us to catch? Is that when we're suffering, it's not like God is the one who's attacking us, but he's right there beside you weeping with you through your suffering. In fact, he loved you so much that, that when we talk about the sting of death that he sent his only son to offer for us victory over death, that when Lazarus died, he was the one who cried beside those who saw the pain of death. He's beside you. He hasn't forgotten you. And it's important for us to remember the first thing this morning is we are not, I've said this already, but I'll say it again. We are not, nor have we ever been in control. When our lives feel like they're falling apart, this, this image is one that, that, that you can fill in the blank for yourself. I, I don't know all of your stories. For some of you, you have experienced disruptions. For some of you, it's been physical pain. For others of you, you, you can fill in the blank. But, but I can guarantee you, at at least one time in your life, you felt like the world that you're in was falling apart and yet, in the midst of that reality, what we see is that God is faithful. Verse 1 of Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. What a great resume. Man, I wish that that would be what others would say about me. I hope and pray that that's what God says about me when he looks down upon me, that he is a man who's blameless. He strives with every power that he has to flee from sin, that he's an upright person. He fears God. We, we misunderstand that. He gives God the glory and honor that he deserves. And, and when it comes to evil, he doesn't, he doesn't tempt himself. He doesn't surround himself with opportunities to live in evil things. But instead, what he does is he turns himself away from it. You know, this man, Job, uh, I believe was a real man. I believe this story is one that it's hard for us to pinpoint in history. When this took place, we assume that this land of us that's referred to is somewhere southeast of the Dead Sea, but it's a complicated place and it's a complicated time in history. 
But what we understand is that as we read this story, it's going to be so realistic because we're going to see the temptations that come upon every person who's had what is precious to him torn away. So, so Job is described here later in verse 8. He's described as a man who's upright. He's unique. He's a man who's committed himself to God. And, and he was an, also a man who was incredibly blessed. I love that it says in verse 2, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. I'll just say this publicly. Any dad who has three daughters is deeply blessed. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you look at this story and, and you see his life and he was a man who had a family. We're going to see in the text that they liked each other. Uh, it's confusing, but it describes these probably birthday celebrations that they get together and they, they love being in community with one another. So here he is. He's a man who's been blessed with seven sons, three daughters, and he's possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkey. I have one beagle, and, I, and that's enough for me. Can you, can you imagine? I, I feel so blessed, by the way, by that little guy. But can you imagine what, what it would take to feed and house and care? This is in the time period before there was a stock market and this was before you could take your money to the bank. And so you read this and you're supposed to read this and you're supposed to go, this guy was incredibly blessed. Like he, he had so much more than he could ever need in a lifetime. And Job is one of those men who had incredible wealth, but yet he still allowed himself to deeply depend on the Lord of the universe. He said he has many servants so that this man was the greatest of all of the people in the East. His greatness was not just by reputation. It was not just by his wealth. Later, we see in verse 8 that he was a man, that there was no one like him on the earth at that time. He was an incredible man. And we're given this example next in the next few verses of his understanding and commitment, his respect or fear of God. It's incredible. Verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. Now, readers, we're supposed to understand that when he describes that intimacy of being together, is just to understand that his family was whole, that they connected together. There was intimacy in their, their, their siblings' lives. And this doesn't mean they weren't married or adults. It just means that they, he's describing this to say that they, they celebrated together with one another. And when the days of the feast had run their course... Job would sin and consecrate them. This is fascinating. I like how Matthew Henry puts it. He says, he sent and he sanctified them. He reminded them to examine themselves, to confess their sins, to seek forgiveness, and as one who hoped for acceptance with God through the promised Savior. In other words, his faith was so rich that he's pressing it into the lives of his children. He, he's so serious about it that it says that he woke up early in the morning to offer burnt offerings in accordance with the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God for their hearts. Thus Job did continually. He, he cared about the spiritual well-being of his children. And we're supposed to read this in the narrative and we're supposed to say, oh, Job, this guy had a great family. He was incredibly blessed. And he also was a man who took his faith extremely seriously. You don't get called extremely righteous as you are in verse 8 here without being a pretty incredible person. 
Job's suffering, though, what we're going to see is going to be pretty all-inclusive. It's going to touch almost everything that's precious to him. I, I don't know if you could do that inventory with me right now. If you could start to list, hey, what's precious to me? What would be most valuable? We hear different versions of this. What would you take out of your home if there was a fire? Uh, I hope it's your family first. And then after that, like, what, what, what is it that's, that's valuable to you? If Job had done an inventory, he would have probably listed his family. He would have listed his health. He would have listed his experiences with his, those who are precious to him. And, and what we're going to see over these next so many chapters, over the next few months, is we're going to see that these things, including his health and his family, are going to be torn away from him. And it's going to be horrifying to watch. It's going to be uh, discouraging to watch. But but what's so encouraging to me is that in the midst of this, Job did not lose his faith. That's a part of the beauty of this book. And it's this powerful truth that, that, uh, that, that Job was a man who was righteous. And in that process, he would learn an awful lot about suffering. You know, what suffering does when we lose what's precious to us is it, that it reminds us that we are not in control. It, it reminds us that that life doesn't always function in the way that we like it to function. Now, let's be really honest. When something is taken away from us, for one thing, it's often that we respond with bitterness and discouragement, but we often allow our minds to say, oh, I wonder what I did to deserve this. I wonder what, what punishment I'm experiencing right now. And in fact, Job's accusers later on are going to ask him to do an inventory of his life, and they're going to assume, which is not a safe assumption, all of the time, that, that Job somehow was righteous before and he earned this blessing, and now he's unrighteous, and therefore he's earning this curse that's being stolen away. That theology, you may not believe that that's a part of our lives, but when we allow that theology to creep into our lives and to become a cornerstone in our life, you know what it does? Is it lessens our understanding of God's grace. So his grace is based not on our merit, but it's based on his goodness, his forbearance, his kindness, his forgiveness for us. And when we allow that theology to creep in, I get because I'm good, I'm pious, and therefore I receive the blessings of the things in this world. When that stops happening, it really disrupts our situation, right? Well, what did I do wrong? What's going on? Well, we have the privilege in this story to read the rest of the story and when we study the rest of the story, we realize that Job is not losing these things because of his lack of righteousness. In fact, he's losing these things because of his righteousness. So a good test for us when, when we initially think that something goes wrong uh, and, and we find ourselves saying, well, what, well who's to blame? What, what happened? What, what did I do wrong? I think it's appropriate for us to search our hearts. It's always appropriate for us to understand the penalty of natural consequences in our lives. But to allow this not to be this divine understanding. If things go bad, we find ourselves saying, not, I do not feel like I'm getting what I deserve. Piety does not always bring prosperity. And if people tell you that, they do not understand the truth of God's word. In, in the book of 2 Peter, Peter talks about this so much. He says, well, you're suffering. You're Christians. Why does this surprise you? If it was your own dumb decisions, and if you brought this upon yourself, then deal with it. 
but, but to understand Jesus said that he was going to suffer and he did. And he said, we are going to suffer. But the blessing is that we get to anticipate it all being made right someday. So when we confuse heaven with earth, what happens is we find ourselves deeply discouraged. I, John Stott puts it this way, so profound. He says, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge in the, in the Christian faith. The single greatest challenge in the Christian faith is suffering and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Do you remember David's words to God when he says, why are my enemies prospering? I don't get this, God. We, we do say that word a lot. This is unfair. And yet what he goes on to say is sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. And, and the truth is it absolutely can. That God can still be just but allow us to suffer. Job's accusers did not understand what Job did, that not all loss is a result of judgment from God. It's so important for us to remember that there are many different causes of suffering. Some suffering in the world that we live in is due to the fact that we live in a broken world that hasn't been restored yet. We, we shouldn't forget that. When we even as a nation, the city on a hill, the idea that there was going to be this perfect group of people that were going to experience the blessings of not experiencing suffering, like the, the, it'll never be that. There's no, never been a time in history when the fallenness of the world that we live in hasn't been palpable around us. It's, it's the reality of living in a broken world. We live in a broken world that has not been restored yet. But good news for you is it's going to be restored someday. That, that we can find ourselves in the midst of our suffering, accepting that some of the suffering that we have is just straight up self-inflicted. We give in to temptation. The deceiver is doing this tempting that we're going to see in the text. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty obvious here in this chapter that Satan's going to be the tempter. We confuse who's responsible for our temptations. And uh, in James 1.13, it says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So stop blaming God for the temptations that are part of your life. You see the image in the background here. Some of you are looking at this. You're like, oh yeah, I know that. I know that story. Charles Short, Schultz, as he started this back in, um, in the 50s doing the Peanuts cartoons, he uh, had this almost annual experience with Charlie Brown and Lucy. And, and you know the story, right? I'm going to hold the ball for you, Lucy, until you come and kick it. And then at the last second, I'm going to pull it away. Uh, it's probably not um, a surprising thing that Lucy, her name uh, has at its core the idea of Lucifer. She's the deceiver, right? And she's holding it. There's one cartoon that I watched where he does this to her four different times. Every time he, she has a declaration to her. She has a declaration that says, Charlie Brown, don't you trust me? I got this for you. We got this together. I'm going to hold this for you. And then she pulls it away. And then it happens again and pulls it away. And, and, and I want to remind you that there's three primary temptations that are a part of every person's life. The first temptation that's common is our own, just the world that's around us. The reality of a broken world that's around us, the world tempts us. First John 2.15 puts it this way. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Stop blaming God for these things. The next one is the flesh and the devil. The, the flesh is that part of us that has appetites that, that inside of us say that they need to be fed. But what we know, according to James 1.14, is each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. And then as we study Job, especially these first two chapters, we're going to see that Satan, the deceiver who wants to steal, to kill, and to devour, is the one who's going to communicate to us that, that this is God's fault. Let me just remind you, church, let me remind you, those of you who are joining us online, like Satan wants you to blame God. He loves that. This is God's fault. This, this God that you serve, he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your circumstances. He's unfair. And and so then in the text, we recognize this truth, and we're going to see it in the next few verses, that suffering does not mean that things are out of control. We see this in verse 6, if you'll look with me in chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, these are angels, come to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the fallen angel, also comes among them. This is a weird time in history. We don't know the circumstances completely, but what we know is that it's important for us to understand that God is in control and Satan is coming to describe his circumstances to God. I believe that it is this image of the fact that God is still sovereign. Verse seven, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and he said, from going to and fro on earth and from walking up and down on it. You get that image of the lion that's seeking whom it can devour. It, it, you know, it's funny for me that, that often people, I, I hear them do this and it, it's so shocking to me that we give Satan divine attributes sometimes. We, we assume that he carries with him the same authority and strength and power as the God of the universe. Read the text. He, he is at one place at one time. He is under God's authority still, as according to this text. And it says in verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, um, uh, or he says, The Lord, Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, I have been going to and fro from walking up and down on it. Then in verse 8, And the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Just get this right. He's, he's overwhelmingly proud of Job. God is looking at Job and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That, that Job's righteousness to God is something that God finds glory in. Do you understand that's what worship is? Do you understand that that's what it means for us to be people who worship God with our lives? He says, don't honor me with your lips. That's not the point. That, that Job was a man who did what I ask. He's obeyed me. He loves me. And so then it says here, have you considered my servant Job? What a great phrase, by the way. My servant Job. Could he say that about Sean? My servant Sean. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, who turns away from evil. You know, even though it might feel like it today, Satan is not in control. Satan is extremely different from God. Um, but from Job's perspective, what he's about to experience is going to feel at times like God's not in control. 
It, it's going to feel painful. It's going to be feel horrible. In fact, abundantly blessed people, let's be honest, uh, those of us who've been abundantly blessed, which I, I stand up, and by the way, I say this, I said this to my dad recently when he was just, we were just talking about life, and I just said, dad, I don't know anybody who's as blessed as I am. I, I have been so blessed, and so blessed people, when those things that are precious to them are pulled away, the, the, the pain it feels even greater than those who maybe haven't been as blessed. And here, God never stops loving him through these losses. I, I appreciate this, uh, that, that what we get this image of when we think of what's going to happen with Job is, is ultimately the story that's going to happen with every single person who's placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> That, that this, this, divine, this um, satanic plan to destroy, this satanic plan to mock the character and strength of God in our lives, that, 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 that God never stops loving you and I through our losses. And, and I love the way that the Kyle and Dulich commentary puts it. It says, this, the final solution of the problem, which this marvelous book, he's talking about Job, sets forth, is then this the suffering of the righteous and its deepest cause is the conflict of the seed of the woman with the seed of the serpent. You know, this is Genesis 3.15, the, the, the declaration that Satan is going to be crushed by the heir of Eve. And this, this statement is, it's the deepest cause. It's the conflict of the seed of the woman with the seed of the serpent, which ends in the head of the serpent being trampled underfoot. It is the type or copy of the suffering of Christ, the holy God who has himself borne our sins and in the constancy of his re reconciling love has withstood even to the final with, with overthrow, the assault of wrath and the, of the angel of wrath. In other words, Satan's not on the winning team. That the God of the universe through his grace is going to overwhelm death. But for those of us who live in the reality of life and death today, we have to wrestle with the fact that we see all around us we're not in charge. But the great news is that doesn't mean that God is not still faithful. And I think this third point is a soul-searching point for us this morning. When what is precious is taken away, we discover an awful lot about who we are. When you take away something that's precious, we, we find our identity. I, I remember this like yesterday that so meaningful for, to me in high school, there was an athlete who, he was the best of the best in our school. He was a running back. He was extremely gifted. And I came around the corner of my locker on a normal school day and that man was there in tears. And I remember talking with him and basically what had happened was he had an unexpected injury and it really cut short what he expected to be his career. And, it, and he looked across from me with tears in his eyes and he said, if I can't be a football player, I don't know who I am anymore. I, I can't help but think for, for those of us who have things that have been taken away, the question, who we are, what am I? Well, well I have news for you. If you've placed your understanding of your identity under the care of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as a son and daughter of the King, that that can't be taken away from you. Do you understand? 
And, and so in the midst of this, what we see in verse nine is that Satan's gonna answer the Lord. And in this mocking tone, he says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? You, your fortress is around him. God, you've blessed him so much. And in this mocking tone, he says, have you not blessed everything in his house, all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. And then, and then you just get this pregnant pause, this moment when Satan stands back and he says, you know what, God, I wonder if you took your hand, you stretched it out, you touched all that he has, I bet you that he will curse you to your face. This is so real. We see this playing out right in front of us. People who've experienced great loss, they stand back and they say, can I trust God anymore? Well, of course you can. The deceiver is tempting you to do this very thing, to, to have when something's precious taken away that, that you would find yourself standing back. And the Lord says to him in verse 12, he says, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. We're gonna see this in chapter one, uh, that, that his stuff is gonna be taken away and it's gonna be tragic. And then in chapter two, there's gonna be another one of these dialogues and, and Job's health had been spared. And then Job's health is going to be torn away as well. And I know for, for some of us, we stand back and we say, this is mean, this is nasty. But what we're going to see as the layers are pulled away and as the accusations come and as more and more is taken away, what we're gonna see is that Job is a man who desired to continue to lift God's name high in his life. And there's gonna be a restoration. We actually get to see the restoration happen in the book of Job. It's really cool. You can't replace people who've died. It's impossible to do that. But what we see is this, this glimpse of what we can anticipate when we are restored, when we graduate to heaven and we allow our bodies to be restored, when God allows in his infinite kindness and generosity to to provide for us a mansion in his living presence. And I'll tell you that, that we see, even in this, this hint of things being torn away, that the Lord found himself still being praised. You know what I believe about Satan? As he describes this, Satan does not understand the heart of worship. In Psalm 86, 12, it says, I give thanks to you, O my God, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. It, 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 as we watch Job's life, what we get to see is a man who continues to give thanks to the Lord. You know what I believe about suffering? I want to close with this thought. What I believe about suffering is that suffering can actually expose the best in us. I was in Liberia, West Africa in the years after a civil war that had started in the 80s. And one of the pastors that I met there told the story of how he and his family had, due to the civil war, had to go to the Ivory Coast. And they, they had to leave behind their family, or they had to leave behind their homes, they had to leave behind their, like everything, their jobs, everything that was precious to them. And as they were there, they had this moment, and I'm praying for this moment for our church family right now 
that they had this moment where they looked around and they realized that and it was he and about four other men that hadn't known each other before this, that, that are there with their families, that they're just sitting around in a refugee camp. And they just realized that what people needed in that community was the gospel. And so they decided they're going to plant a church in Cote d'Ivoire in order to establish uh, what, what it meant to bring praise and glory to the Lord. And people came to Christ. There was this amazing movement of God. And when I went there several years after the fact, these men, each of them not being pastors before this, had become pastors, were leading churches in Liberia, and the church was growing like crazy. And, and you know what's incredible about that is that they could have been like some of us today, that they could have gotten there and they could have said, this is un, what's the word we use, right? This is unfair. But instead, what it did was their suffering revealed inside of them the jewel of God's divine protection and provision and just understanding if he's going to protect us, he's going to protect us here. He's got us. He knows our needs more than what we do. And so, my friends, I believe that God has not let us down. You know what I believe? is that the God of the universe has opened doors. And so as we close this service out in worship, I, I just want to invite you, I want to encourage you to join me in prayer right now and ask that the Lord would allow you to, to do an inventory. And I encourage you to begin with just remembering how blessed you are. One of the things that I think sustained Job through this was that he was not just a man who understood what was taken away from him, but he still remembered what blessings still Remained, And I pray that for each one of us, Lord. We, we accept that we are people who are not in control, but we also accept that we're so honored to know the one that is in control. And I pray for each one of us that as we stand before you, for some of us in our blessing and abundance, for some of us in our, our lack and, and what is a season of drought and discouragement, Lord, I thank you that we anticipate the fact that we're under the care of the God of the universe, that he knows our needs more than what we do, and he has not disappointed us, but instead he is the one who will promise to restore us. We love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.